I feel lucky to live in a time with access to so much inspiration. From the extraordinary tales of dynamic humans throughout history, to the exploration of consciousness and whatever that means. Sometimes the muse comes in between those thoughts, the concepts we can't explain with words, only through images. Paintings provide a way to explain those concepts, like a psychic connection, a silent conversation. That inanimate rectangle on the wall becomes a portal, transmitting your new inspiration to others. I'm your host, Gabe Wells, and this is the Saturate Life Podcast. Episode number 16, with the masterful cinematic painter, Gabe Leonard. Watching those time-lapse, time-lapse videos you have are just great, dude. I love them. Cool. Yeah, it was... Originally, that was just an idea for marketing the works. I know that people like to see the process, and so it gives you a, a fast way to see it come together. And it's kind of a way of proving that I'm the one that did it, I guess. I mean, sometimes if people ever question that, you know, is this done on a computer? Or, and I got that, you know, a long time ago, not so much now, but because I would do a lot more uh, detailed work. And everybody always suspects that it's, you know, you've cheated it somehow, you've just Photoshopped it copied it and so yeah this shows that no that's not really what happens and you can watch it happen in front of your face and what's great is i don't know if it's just like falling into that ten thousand hour rule or whatever but you're so precise in so much of what you do it seems like so f- like well polished like you're just got in this groove thanks man boy you can see in a few of those videos i completely change my mind i'll have a character in one place and i'll completely wipe him out and repaint him so i i don't get married to anything that's happening in the painting. I have a general idea. I mean, I used to do really detailed drawings and compose them, make sure they're right, transfer them to a painting surface and then paint it. But I get done with the painting and I look at the sketch and I'm like, what happened? And the sketch had so much energy <laughs> in it and it had, it had the life in it. And so yeah. a little, I just weeded all that out. I was like, I don't need all these sketches. I'll just go and draw right on the canvas and get right to it. And uh, I used to do color pencils and acrylic paints and mixed media. And it was just like, I'd spend several hours Tediously rendering and coloring in a square inch of painting. I'm like, man, this is nuts. I'd rather just mix the paint, slap it on there, and move on to something else. And just, you know, do something that's more immediate. And uh, a lot of the confidence that comes in making those paintings is basically drawing. You have to really uh, be adept at your draftsmanship and being able to draw. You can't make a good painting with a bad drawing. And you can make a, you know, you can have a great drawing and, and poor painting technique and still make a great piece, but all the polish and, and technique in the world is not going to solve a bad drawing. And so what I'd do, I would draw the Sharpies and pens and stuff I can't erase with. And mm-hmm. you would, uh, I'd be out at coffee shops or restaurants drawing people, just things that you have to, you don't have time to copy. They're moving constantly. So you learn to understand what's happening and quickly jot it down in shorthand and get gestural with it. Once you have those frameworks and you get that ability just to draw that worrying about making mistakes you don't care about mistakes because you know it's not like heart surgery it's, nobody's gonna die if you screw up <laughs> yeah and you can change your mind you can repaint over something that's the beauty of it and there's plenty of paintings i've just tossed to the side and then a little while later painted some some of my best paintings over the top of them i just repaint over the top of things i don't like mm-hmm. i had a painting i did of an out you know an outlaw calamity jane and it, she was like between these bar doors and it looked like a book cover, and I hated it, so I just tossed it, and we started the painting. And I picked up that 
that first start later, and I painted a painting of Charles Bukowski on top of it. Which is awesome. I saw that and, painting. I love that. And that painting, yeah, but that painting couldn't have turned out that way if I hadn't have done that other painting under it, because that became parts of the things that were in that second painting. So, you know, I don't worry about mistakes. I don't really know that there's a, such, a, such a thing. Anything can be fixed, be solved, and you, know, you can start over if you don't like it. It's that bad. Yeah, that's a great idea. Did, did you just come up with the idea about just going to a cafe with a Sharpie and drawing like that? Or is it... Books. I mean, when I was in college, I was trying to get into uh, animation industry, and I was wanting to be a background painter. But then to get into the studios, you had to go through their entry-level positions in animation, which was character cleanup. And so I was taking a lot of figure drawings. One of the classes I took was called Rapid Sketch, and they would just have somebody come in and do something in the class. The model would be kicking a ball around or, or dancing or doing something constantly moving. So you had to learn how to draw people that were in motion rather than people just sitting there on a, like a lump with their space heater next to them, you know. So you, you, you got rid of your brain trying to copy what you're seeing and you tried to understand what was happening and how to put that together in gestural motions. And uh, it got a lot more constructive with the drawing. And so I would just continue that and drawing people all over the place, you know, go to the park, watch people playing Frisbee or, or whatnot. When you start doing that, you, your drawing skills just get immensely better because you're, you're starting to understand what you're drawing and like i said not from just copying surface detail you're, you're capturing an energy and a connection that people are living beings and you're trying to capture that part of it in the, the drawing i also find it's kind of refreshing to get a new environment like that because i've i've drawn at cafes and so forth and uh you get it it opens up your mind in a different way to get out of the studio and just get working yep. right looking around i've only i've only done when you you're, what you're talking about a couple times, but it was with a pencil. So I'm going to try it with a marker just to try to get that, that uh, you know. Sharpie, a ballpoint pen, just something that you can't erase with. And then you're just forced to, you know, make it count. The first lines you put on are you, you know, you take some time to consider what you're going to do and, and then you just put it down and you move on. If, it don't, if you don't like it, you just turn the page and start a new drawing. And it's, that way you don't get caught up in fiddling around with one thing and you just move on. You learn from that. But you'll, you'll get more confident in what you do. You'll, you'll understand that you can't be scribbling around and searching around for it, which, which I think is kind of a waste of time. It's, it's you know, a line of a back should just be a line of the back. It doesn't need to be sketched to sketched in, you know, 30, 30 different lines for it. Trying to, trying to get down to the simplest, most efficient way of expressing what you're trying to express is kind of what I, I try to do is just simplify things down as there's not a lot of detail in the things I do. Like, there's not a lot of backgrounds. There's not a lot of really fine, crisp detail. There's maybe a focus in some of the paintings, like the hand or a pistol or some sort of, some sort of part of the painting that's got a focused amount of detail. But the rest of it kind of falls into loose, looser brushwork. And your mind will tend to fill in the details. And as if you were, I, I like to have something to uh, figure out in a painting. It's like there's been a lot of paintings where I see very nice, you know, technically well done, but kind of lifeless because it's, everything is explained to me visually. I don't have any of it. It's like it's every every highlight in, in the little knob and dial is painted in there, every, everything but the kitchen sink. And too much information is, you know, just too much. I think sometimes people might make up for a lack of uh, concept by putting more detail. And I, I know that when I get frustrated with the painting, I, it's, it's hard not to try to fix it by putting in more information. But sometimes you need less information. You need to simplify it or delete something. It's usually what solves some of the paintings. Absolutely. I made that mistake in my work. I started trying to get very, very detailed. And at some points, I was, it's like it's too smooth and it looks too much like a photograph. Where I can see in your work, I'm really inspired by it. You can see it, you go to like uh, God forgives. I don't. The thing I noticed about that is like what you were exactly saying is that the barrel of the gun is something that I would have went into detail on, but you didn't. It's really kind of it's 
the rest of its detail, but the barrel of the gun is like an unfocused camera. You focus directly in on that woman's face, and your mind automatically does fill in the gaps of the shotgun. Well, the key for that is making sure the barrel's straight. Everything else is not important. <laughs> you know, it's wobbly, <laughs> and it's like it doesn't look right. But but when, with that barrel, that gun, if, I, if it's kind of obscured, it looks like it's moving or it's in smoke or atmosphere, and it just adds some sort of mystery of what's going on. As she just fired the gun, is it a, you know what's what's happening? You know, your eye kind of goes back down to where her hand and her face and part of her dress is where the focus of the painting is. So you spend more time looking at that. And uh, I guess I approach it, but it doesn't need to be there. I won't put it in and try to just put as what is necessary for the most part to communicate the idea. And, and the idea was her and her attitude. And, you know, that model ad pose, I had her, you know, jumping up and down to get the dress flailing around and get her oh, hair. Yeah. <laughs> I have, you know, I have models close to these things, and I have them do all kinds of weird things sometimes because I kind of know what I'm going for. And so I'll have them do different things. I'll take some photographic references of them doing that, and then I'll, I'll take the reference for the hand from one photograph, the face from another, and kind of use all these different references to put it together in the composition. And I usually have a kind of a quick thumbnail sketch of what I want to what I want to do in a painting that I use to base the references on. But I, I can get pretty elaborate in the, in the setups. I mean, I. But a wardrobe studios here up in North Hollywood where all the movies and TV sets rent their wardrobe and I'll get stuff that's period clothing, especially for the outlaw stuff. And so I'll, I'll get them fitted and wardrobed out. And then I'll think back to my studio and set up a photo session to do and set up a light, have a lighting kit that I brought from my friend. I set up lighting and wardrobe. And if I need any sort of special makeup, I hire somebody to do the makeup on it. And so I get, I get all the info, as much information as I possibly can. And then I weed out everything that's not necessary. So I, I kind of do a lot of overkill on the uh, pre-production and setting it up, and then I try to get down to the basic of what it is. So it's not all about costumes and makeup. It's more about the character and personality, but all those other things are supporting that. Whatever doesn't support that idea, I try to weed out. It's, it's not helping. It's not doing anything. Yeah, I, was, I actually saw that on your Facebook. You had a whole wardrobe uh, for the, the, I think, the new the new show you have coming up, the Lux Show. And I thought yeah. that was so cool because I, I wondered. I was like, man, these... These look great. So you actually just go and rent them. That's a fantastic yeah. idea. How do you get the models? Like, where where do you I, find them? Uh, friends of mine. Uh, I have friends that are like in theater production companies. And oh, do perfect. I, I hire actors to do it. Like, how much do you have to pay somebody to model for you? Uh, it depends on the setup. I, you know, sometimes 75 bucks to 150 bucks per session. You know, if I have a whole big group of paintings, you know, I'll work out a flat rate deal for them. And, and then the wardrobe is more expensive. It is been some paintings where I spent several thousand dollars in, in model fees and wardrobe and wow. did a painting Battle of Little Bighorn, which was a real historical uh, thing. And I spent a lot of time at prop houses and wardrobe studios talking to the history guys that knew what kind of clothing they wore. And, and uh, renting a lot of that stuff can get really pricey, but you know you want it to be right and correct. And you know you spend a lot of money and you have a cool painting afterwards. You know, that's the thing is trying not to get carried away because it can get overly expensive sometimes. How much do you plan ahead for all this? And how much of this stuff kind of just happens in the whole creative flow of things you just figure out as you're going? Well, it's a little bit of all of the above. A lot of the outlaw stuff, there's a lot of historical references and specific, you know, I have a specific person or event in mind. And so I'll know the, the backstory. Then I find a model and I'll set up a wardrobe. And, I'm, and so I always have this sort of intention that the character is doing or some sort of empathy for who they are, you know, like a calamity to Jane. I, imagine what they were like, you know, and I imagine the environment they, they were living in. Cause like, you know, I grew up in Wyoming 
the middle of nowhere. I understand how brutal the environment is in winter, long winters and harsh summers, and, and especially without electricity and running water and the hostile Native Americans and other hostile settlers out there who may not have had the best intentions and cougars and coyotes and wolves and all kinds of other stuff you have to deal it's with. It's nuts, right, to think about that? Like, I live in Colorado in Denver, and when I go to the Rockies, I think about it every single time I go out there. I'm like, some crazy bastard tried to cross this without a road. You know what I mean? Like somebody, there was a train of like wet, covered wagons going across the Rockies and going, well, we've made it this far. We can just push along and see if we can make it through the freaking Rockies. Yeah. Go to the, I don't know if you've been to the Buffalo Bill Cody Museum, just it's yeah. not too far outside of Denver. I mean, it's, it's a graves way up on a mountaintop somewhere. Yeah. It's, you know, crazy stories. You know, we, we tend to complain when our phone battery dies and, you know, we, yeah. <laughs> We have luxurious problems with <laughs> that. We but, do, uh, but, right? But yeah, it's so weird thinking about, you hear stories of like, they were trapped in a snowstorm. What was the famous one? They were trapped in a snowstorm and the guy ended up just, they just had, ended up like eating people in the village and, uh, yeah. and like the whole, so then you come out of this winter and you have to live with yourself and going, yeah, I know we ate, we ate your brother, but <laughs> he was the weakest. <laughs> he was the weakest. My dad, my dad, when I was a kid, he worked in a, uh, in the oil fields up in Wyoming, and you know he was down in the rural parts of the state. You know, tending to whatever he did at his, at his job. So he came across this sandstone outcrop one time, and there was a carving in the sandstone, and it was like November second, eighteen seventy-five. I don't think I'm going to make it. Oh, <laughs> whoa, that is amazing. <laughs> his name was in there, and everything. That was, was pretty great. So he doesn't remember where it was at, but it's like you, you'll come across that kind of stuff out in the middle of nowhere. So people get trapped. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really fascinated with that, too, more so now as I'm getting older, because I'm from the East Coast, where everything's kind of, you know, it was pretty much yeah. settled, everything's kind of, but, so you have that, I mean, that was a sense of adventure there, but it almost seems like a bigger sense of adventure to then be those people that say, I have this comfy life on the East Coast, but I'm going to go off into this unknown territory to the Europeans, you know, at least, and you're running into Indians, or, or not Indians, sorry, Native Americans that are probably yeah. hip to the idea that, you know, you wiped out whole populations of other Native Americans. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the people that have probably had the most comfiest lives on the East Coast at the time weren't the ones going out. They were the mm. financiers sending other people out. There was fortunes to be had in unknown territories, gold, land. I mean, there was, that's why people went out there. They could either be poor. There, A lot of them were immigrants from Europe and they had no prospects because all the lands already bought up and owned. They came over with hopes of establishing something for themselves. If they didn't have a family name in, in Ireland or England, wherever they were from, they, you know, they're screwed. They just were going to live out their existence being penniless. But here there was opportunity to do something. And, you know, if you're willing to put in the hard work and, and do it, and uh, that's that's what they did. And so that, that comes into a lot of these characters, too, is just this, a tough-minded personality. You have to you have to be a strong person. So that's I think what appeals to me. And the, the other thing is that in the in the history of it is I don't think you know too many people really appreciate it that much. And if you start bringing up his, historical people and names and places, and it seems kind of dusty. You know, it's like oh well, this battle happened here. Well, there's a whole other. I mean, there was a whole other aspect to it. They were they could be fascinating. I just kind of want to show that look. These these people could be fascinating as fascinating as anything that's around today. And, my thinking is that there was not much difference between us and people that were roaming around in Colorado and Wyoming in 1880. It's just that they have different wardrobe and different technology. There was a painting that I learned about. I was reading some article. I forget which, what it was in. But it was, oh, I'm trying to find it. I had it written down. Uh, Double-fisted, that's what it was. Yeah, tell yeah. the story of that 
that guy because that's a really cool historical story he, that I didn't know about. Yeah, he was a bounty hunter out of Texas, a guy named Bass Reeves, and he was the first black deputized marshal west of the Mississippi. And from a lot of the accounts that I've read, he was a former slave and he earned his freedom and became a bounty hunter. And he was a notoriously steady shot. He, you know, he got in a lot of gunfights and was never hit, but he had a buckle shot off one time and a hat shot off one time. And he arrested his own son once because he was wanted for beating or murdering his wife and okay. thought if he, he better bring him in because if somebody else brought him in, it was gonna, he wasn't going to bring him out, bring him out alive. But uh, he was just one of those guys that there probably should be a movie about. And I yeah. think the closest yeah. thing that's out there is Django Unchained. It'd probably be the closest thing to, you know, that sort of character type. But uh, there's a, there's all kinds of fascinating stories, and you know that well. There's, there might have been movies and things about them, but they're really twisted and distorted to make an interesting, you know, to make a marketable movie. Like like the Jeremiah Johnson that had a was it Robert Redford in it. He married a, an Indian woman, a Crow woman, Indian woman, and had a family with him. And he was a, a mountain, you know, like a fur trapper in the mountains. And after that happened, uh, the some Crow warriors came and killed his whole family, killed his wife and his kids. And he went on a vendetta against the Crow Warriors for like 20 years. And uh, he was also, he was called uh, Jeremiah Liver Eaton Johnson, called Crow Killer. Because what he would do is he would kill them, and then he would cut off their liver and eat it. Oh, and it was more of an insult, I think, than it was, you know, because he was a cannibal or anything. It was an insult to, their, to them as a, as a person, what they believed. And after he killed about 40 of them, they decided they couldn't afford to lose any more warriors, and they made a peace with them. They had like a smoke a peace pipe and everything, and and uh, made him a, a chieftain in their tribe, and that was how it ended. <laughs> but he, yeah, he was 20 years. And one, at one point, he was captured by the Blackfeet Indian. He was traded to the Crow, and while he was being held captive, they left him alone with, with a guard, and he jumped the guard, took his knife, and killed him, and then cut that guard's leg off, and then used that guard, <laughs> used that leg as a blunt force weapon, and beat his way out of the encampment. And Get hauled the off fuck out of here. Then, <laughs> and he ate the leg until he got back to you know some white guy civilization. <laughs> There's a blurry line between legend and myth and actual facts, but I think even if that story were true, the legends around him, I, there's something about what he did that captivated people and brought that story out. And, you know, fascinating stuff. So I did, I did a painting of him called Crow Killer, just a guy in a big, big fursuit holding a big knife. Yeah. It's uh, like three foot by four. It's a really big painting, too. When you moved from, like, you went to, you grew up in Wyoming went to college in Ohio, and then you moved to Venice Beach. Well, I, mo- I moved to L.A. I was living in Glendale, which is about 20... It's, it's a suburb of L.A., about 25 miles from the beach. But anyway, I started selling in Venice Beach. That's what I was interested in, too. So you had a bunch of artists just lined up on Venice Beach just showing their artwork. What was that like? It, w- it was rough. I mean, it, well, at first it was it was a lot of fun. I kind of back up until the story of what happened, why I ended up there. When I first got to L.A., I run into this problem I think a lot of people think in their minds, like... Thought I'd come out here, I could, you know, I had restaurant experience, I'd get a job. Well, all the restaurant jobs were taken up by actors and people that did other creators. So that wasn't happening. And then the only job I could get after several weeks of looking for a job was seasonal help with Macy's folding shirts for six twenty-five an hour. And and there were, you know, back in Ohio, like McDonald's started at eight dollars an hour. So uh, and, and the rent out here was two times as much as it was out there. So I needed to make some extra money. I, you know, I had the same sort of grievances. Like, man, there wasn't so many people here there wasn't so many people willing to work for nothing you could make a wage out here but looking back now it's like i'm, I'm glad it was that way because i wouldn't have been properly pushed to do what i had to do and 
if I came out here and Macy's paid 12 bucks an hour with benefits, I may still be working at Macy's. It's been a lot harder to leave that, you know? So anyways, I was down on the boardwalk of Venice Beach walking around and I saw some people selling some art and stuff down there. And, and it occurred to me that they wouldn't be out here if they weren't selling anything. And what they were selling was, my opinion, wasn't that good. It was just kind of hokey and, you know, goofy looking stuff. So I thought, well, if they can make money, I can come out here and try to make some money. So that's what I did. I just went out there with my... You know, my first day, I went out there with some original landscape paintings, and I made some color copies at Kinko's, little postcards, and I didn't even know how to what to price them at. I was like, man, see, they cost me fifty cents a piece. I don't know, five five bucks, uh, two bucks, a dollar. I don't know. So I ended up making like nine dollars my first day, and it cost me six dollars to park. But it, it was it was kind of a, you know, like a proof of concept. It, it could work. I could make some money on here. So I would go down there and uh, just make color copies at Kinko's. All my originals I started making would fit on the scan bed of the color copier, color copy them off, spray them out on some foam cord, drive down there and set them out on the blanket. They'd make 30 or 40 bucks a day. And then the summer came around, I started making close to 100 bucks a day on the weekend. And so in a weekend, I could make more in Venice than I was making at my job at Macy's. And so uh, I just asked if they would give me weekends off, and they refused to. So I asked them to put me on call. That was in 1999. I'm, I think I'm still on call. Never <laughs> 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 officially quit, really. But, uh, but the, the thing about Venice is that it was a real training ground for learning how to talk about your art to people, how to negotiate, how to price your work, how to, how to set a price, how to find the value on it. And then on top of that, you know, you, so you're learning some basic business skills, how to sell your work. The hard part about events is it got really competitive for the space because it wasn't just like a bunch of artists. It would be people doing all kinds of stuff out there and, you know, homeless people. And it's like the battle of who is the most desperate. I mean, it got to the point in the summertime, so many people trying to set up down there and there's so, only so much space. I would be getting there at about midnight the night before, marking off my space across the boardwalk and sleeping in my truck in the parking lot every day, every weekend. And that was just to make a few hundred dollars during the day. And some people were doing the same thing to make $70. That's how I started making money, making a living. I support myself and pay my bills. And I lived meagerly. I didn't buy lots of fancy stuff. And Off of Venice Beach, yeah. really? That's when you yeah, first... That's, oh, wow. I was making a living, you know, working two days a week or so. But then the summer ended and I was screwed again because all the tourists went home and there was no money to be made out there. And I, some of the friends I made in Venice turned me on to other venues, going to college campuses. And so I go to universities here in california and rent a, a space in front of the bookstore where people will be selling you know knickknacks and jewelry and handbags and i started just selling my art to students for like 10 bucks a piece to put up in their dorms so it started getting in my mind that anywhere i saw somebody selling something was some could be me selling my art whether it's a farmer's market uh, a street festival uh venice beach I, I sold my art in front of a barnes and noble bookstore one time because i needed to make some money and i was on the sidewalk and it was gonna rain and i ended up making a couple hundred bucks went and bought some groceries went home <laughs> nice, and I, it's nice. like I, I think what it comes down to is like you know i get inquiries from a young artist trying to figure out their way too and i just tell them look and i tell them the same thing it's like look man anywhere you see somebody selling something it could be you selling your artwork I and mean, there's a difference between making your art and selling it and once you learn how to sell it, you can be independent. I mean, you don't you don't need to, to go through other channels. You don't you know. I don't recommend young artists trying to get into galleries too much. I'd rec- I always think it's more important that you learn how to sell it yourself first, because then you'll know how to talk to galleries about your work and how to market it. You'll build a following for your work that you can bring to a gallery. You'll be more valuable, I think, and, and uh, you'll be more independent. If you have say you have a gallery come in and, and they do really well with your work, and then they decide that you know at a certain point that somebody else is more of their bread and butter and then they put less effort into you then then you're dependent on one or two galleries for all your income and then that goes away then you got to figure out what to do so i always 
think it's a good idea for anybody to understand their business and be able to do it by themselves. And then later on, when you've established a better price point, there's more money to go around. It's like when you're selling paintings, when you're starting out for a couple hundred bucks, there's not enough money in that for a gallery and you. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And if you can only get into group shows, I mean, how many group shows can you do a year? You know, say you did one every month, that's 12 shows. And say you sold your painting every time. I mean, you know, you're still not going to live on that. You know, how many solo shows can you do a year? One, maybe two, unless you paint extremely fast. And, and how, at your price point, how many paintings do you have to sell to make a living on? And so I, I learned early on that not to worry too much about selling every original painting. So I started out making prints and I realized that, well, not everybody will pay $500 for original painting. You know, a whole lot of people will pay 10 or 20 bucks for a print of that painting. So I, that's how I started. And I always made most of the income off selling prints to, to more people. And I was reliant on, you know, a lot of people rather than just one or two, you know, who happened by. So I went from doing festivals, and, you know, or I went from doing like universities to going to music festivals and, you know, to bigger street festivals. And then I started, you know, kind of over a course of years. And then I got to the point where Venice was becoming too much of a drag. Is at some point, it's good to start out, but there's a certain expectation when you're on Venice that you can't rise above. Like if you st- your prices get to a certain point, people just won't value you because of the context of where you're at. So you may have the best work and have the best presentation, but... If you're in the gutter, people still don't want to pay premium prices for it. So I had to vacate from there. There was a lot of things changing with the laws regarding vending down on the boardwalk. And they were actually making, trying to get rid of commercial vending, but it was actually making it impossible for artists to be down there. And so I I got out of there and went to more festivals around California where you had to pay to be in. A lot of the people that were in Venice never left because they couldn't get their mind around paying for a space. Like they wouldn't pay a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars for a space for a weekend because they could just be there for free and it didn't take any planning or any other effort other than them just showing up. But I figured if I, you know if you plan, you get your act together and you plan out six months ahead, you can have plenty of places to go to sell your work. And then it's just a matter of having the art, you know, getting to the space. And then I started uh, doing art festivals all over the country in the last year. So I, I hooked up with a couple of guys that are taking over my marketing and uh, sales strategies and they've been really big help and taking all that sort of stuff off my hands. I don't have to deal with, you know, sales inquiries or galleries or anything. They, they deal with all that. They deal with all the marketing and, you know, we kind of conference call a lot. And it, it's really allowed me to get back to focusing on my painting because when I was busy selling, traveling around, I was like spending a whole lot of time selling my work and not enough time painting. So I would make three or four paintings when I get back and as quick as I can. And you know, I felt like I couldn't really put as much creative energy into them as I'd like to. And like this series I'm working on now, I've been working on for the better part of a year from conceiving of it to setting it up to figuring out the stories and all the, you know, about 10 major paintings that are all interconnected story-wise and different setups and different characters. And something I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise if I didn't have the time to focus on it without interruption. How do you pick all the, the themes of your works? Because you go from like, I mean, you have like pirate, you have a whole pirate series. Yeah. You have, yeah. uh, like, uh, a cowboy kind of series, you know, like, Wild West. And then you have almost, like, a Wild West theme, but with the women. And then you have, yeah. what's, like, the, the one that's, like, in Shark Tank and, like, a boss, clothes that's, only? What's that theme? How, what would you describe that? Those are, those are more uh, sort of contemporary mobster-esque business-type stuff. I, I did those in an effort to gain some traction in the U.K. Um, when we were... We set a network of galleries are now, and when we were first approaching them, we knew that they wouldn't go for the outlaw stuff that would just be they would feel it was probably a little too uh uh too much so i thought well i'll just change it up i'll have the same attitudes and personalities but change the wardrobe and vices so that was the idea of that and it was kind of influenced by 
like a Glengarry Glenn Ross and, and, you know, those type of movies. Uh, been watching Mad Men a lot lately, but oddly enough, I wasn't watching when I did all those paintings, but they all seem to have that sort of vibe to them. Those sort of, you know, these sort of powerful, power, you know, power contemporary guys. I love the time-lapse one of Like a Boss. You, made, you showed me how easy it is to go use gold leaf, something that I just, for some reason was intimidated by. I don't know. And then I saw you use it. I was like, oh, shit, that's easy. But yeah, you have this little cool dripping technique on the gold leaf, too, which I really like. Yeah. I, man, it's awesome. You can do some really silver leaf and gold leaf. You can do some really cool glazing with oils that just tint at different colors. And, and uh, I did, I, first time I did that, I did it on a painting of a guy with two Tommy guns. And it was called Do Unto Others. It was you know, like the golden rule. And it was all gold leaf behind him. And I had this blue kind of glaze at the bottom. And so I had this really greenish blue color faded into the gold. It was really, really interesting. And I've done it a few times. In the right paintings, it can be really pretty interesting. and just adds a little something extra to it, I think. So what, like, okay, so the, you were saying you like kind of, you weren't inspired by Mad Men, but I was kind of wondering, were you inspired by Deadwood at all with your with your painting series? About- I, I love that series. That, that was a great show. I was, I started doing the Outlaw stuff in 2007. I didn't catch up with Deadwood until several years later. I think I got it on DVD or something. But uh, like the, like with the series I did with the guys in the suits and ties, it's, if you look at Boardwalk Empire, Kind of like that sort of attitude, those character types. I think at some point I'd l- like to do a bootlegger series, but just like guys in you know in the Appalachians and you know old Fords and Chevys and stuff driving around. It could be really really cool. That show, I thought I was done with mobster shows. I was like, ah man, I've seen so many. Boardwalk Empire just revived all of it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, no gangsters are cool again. I like them again. <laughs> yeah. But um, so okay, if you were inspired by Deadwood, because I were you just were just like your dad into old western movies, or were you into old western movies? Like, what inspired that whole series? Because it's like one of those things that is kind of forgotten about in our culture. Because I, especially going to the museum Lots here, and, that is forgotten about. And you know, growing up where I did, and I like you were talking about earlier, as you get older, you start getting more interested in history. I love history channel and all that sort of stuff. And so I just found the stories fascinating. And I, before I started doing the outlaw stuff, I was doing more fantasy, like Art Nouveau stuff. And, and uh, it got to a point where I just, you know, like I spent about eight years after I got out of school just kind of doing whatever. You know, I, and there's always a pressure to what's your style, what's, what's your thing. And, and I tried forcing something, you know, like trying to find style. And I just decided I'm just going to do how I feel like doing it, whatever subject matter I feel like doing and uh, not worry about it. And that's the nice thing about selling your work yourself too, is you don't have, you don't have to go to a gallery and say, this is what I do. This is, you know, my little brand of, of art and this is what you can expect in the future. So around 2006 or seven, and I just was not like tired of doing that fantasy sort of work, but I felt like it wasn't really me and it wasn't really anything new. Like a lot of people were doing it. And especially in the LA art scene, it was Art Nouveau is all over, you know, the swirls and things. Just everybody had it in their paintings. And so I I figured, well, I can either be one of the crowd, one of the many, or I can figure out to do something completely different that's more me. And I was like, well, what's completely different? And I'm like, well, bikers. Bikers are completely different. And I kind of made this connection with bikers and outlaw gangs. And, you know, like, well, I like history. And and there's all kinds of American outlaw, Jesse James and type. And it's like, well, what if I dug into that and found some cool stories and just did, you know, what I thought would be like biker types, you know, wearing hats and all the garb and stuff on it. So I, I just dug into some history, started, I think the first one I did was one called Dead Man's Hand, which is loosely based on uh, Wild Bill Hickok, but it wasn't really him because he was holding a pistol and there's a couple guys playing cards. And I did a painting based on Jesse James' bank robbery or somebody, guys getting shot in the chest. And then I did a painting called The Shootout, which is based on a guy named Bloody Bill Anderson, who was an outlaw of Missouri after the Civil War. And through all this, I started learning a lot about our history and, and you know, tiny stories, but you, know, you get more of an appreciation for how one thing affected another and, and 
kind of how we arrived to where we're at today. But, but um, that was kind of the gist of it. I just decided I would do that for a while. And it's just one thing that stuck. It was like, I could do it always over and over, you know, different subject and different characters, but I didn't get bored with it. Like I do a, painting of a, a mermaid it was like ah that was fun i'll do a painting of a floating tree ah, that was fun i'll do a painting of something else and i just couldn't find something that i wanted to do that was related to each other long enough without getting bored and i would see a lot of people finding success doing stuff that seemed to have gimmicks in it that i couldn't pack i can't do 100 paintings with a dancing olive in it you know or, or 100 paintings with somebody holding a martini glass in their in their hand every painting you know i just can't do that i i, I don't have anything against people who can because if we can do it and they're happy doing it, that's, that's, that's fine. But I, did, I didn't want to do something that was uh, a shtick, you know, that was like a little thing that would just kind of run, run its course. And uh, so I think that the underpinning of the interest in the history and the stories, and there's always something new to, to explore, it gets around that idea that, you know, sure, in the outlaw paintings, is, you know, a lot of, almost everybody's got a pistol or an antique, you know, black powder pistol or a weapon of some sort. But it's not really about the weapons. It's more, you know, that's part of it just that goes along with the subject matter. Just like, you know, bicycle helmets go along with riding bikes. So it was, that's that sort of thing. Now, growing up in <laughs> Wyoming, did, um, did you live next to any museums? Like, what, what city did you grow up in or town? I was born in Casper, and then I lived in a little town called Lynch, Wyoming, which had about 150 people in it. Oh, wow. So up until I was 12, I was out catching lizards and snakes and <laughs> doing, you know, out in the prairie, basically. And then uh, we moved to uh, Gillette, Wyoming, which is the northeast corner up by the Black Hills. So there wasn't, I mean, there was some museums, but they were like old and dusty. And it's, there wasn't any real museum, especially any art museum. I didn't see a real art museum until I was 14. I went to Chicago with my, my aunt and uncle and saw, you know, an art museum there. And I remember looking at, you know, the old European master paintings and I'm being amazed at how it looked like metal. But when you get up close, just a dot of paint for the highlight. And I was just so... And I remember reaching over and touched. It's like, I can't believe that this is not, you know, that it's not photographic. It doesn't look like, oh, that's a line. It's like you could just be indicative of, and I remember that impressing me quite a bit, just seeing how simply done things were. Yeah, and, yeah. So I, that, I totally had a similar experience. Um, I grew up in, like, Florida and so forth, where there's not really that many good galleries. I remember going to the first, like, really good gallery in Boston and just being blown away by it. But the reason I wanted to ask is because I don't know if you've been back to Wyoming or anything. Because I know in Denver, when I came out here and I went to the museum, there's a lot more um, Western-themed paintings that I didn't really see so much on the East Coast. And that's what I like about your work a lot because, like, they're really well done. Like, the uh, the museum pieces are really well done. Your pieces are really well done. But you made that same kind of, like, Western painters that are kind of, like, nameless now. And I don't even know if anybody can really – I couldn't name any Western-styled painters – but you made that look cool again. Like you made that look kind of like approach, like uh, accepted again in a kind of mainstream way, and it, because of your style and everything. And I think it's a, an accomplishment in a way to reintroduce that into the society. You know, it was, it was fun creatively. It still, still isn't. It, it checked off a lot of balances on the business side too, because there was nobody else really doing it that I knew of. Like, you know, there might be some people that done some variation of this, but I, it wasn't a hundred people doing this. It wasn't a whole movement of art doing this. You know, like like the big wet-eyed girls. One thing it appealed to, too, is it appealed to men. And a lot of the art that I've been, you know, and I would show at galleries and art festivals, there are paintings of women appealing to women, but nobody did anything that was marketed to men. And all of a sudden, I had guys that were buying art that otherwise weren't buying it. They, they would go to the art festivals with their wives, and all of a sudden, they found something they liked. I was like, the man booth. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Because that's, that's what your paintings are the type of paintings that guys will automatically turn to. Be like, whoa, what is that? Who did that? Yeah. <laughs> if I walked into somebody's house and I saw a lot of your paintings, 
I would totally be automatically drawn to it because it has that kind of uh, like bravado, kind of masculinity that men love. Like we love to think of ourselves as outlaws. We love to think of ourselves as rebels and out there doing some manly shit. Yeah, you you put a, you you create this character, and the idea is that people will want to see themselves in that. And uh, you know, I'm not a big Western guy or a big Western, and I don't wear Wrangler jeans and cowboy hats or anything. And so I. It's the same thing that people will tell me. It's something I thought. It's like, they're like, man, I don't even like Western art, but this is cool. It's like, it's because it's not Western art. It's, it's just got a cowboy hat on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so you, you're getting at something that's more important than the surface details, which is the wardrobe and, and, and the weapons. And you get at that body language and personality, and people see that and they relate to that. And they, you know, they could be wearing Joker hats and, and clown shoes. And if you got the right context and personality in the posing of the character and the lighting and the setup, then it doesn't really matter what they're doing. You can tell an interesting story just by people being able to recognize what that person's saying in in their visual body posturing. And I think if you have the ability to really see, you know, and it sounds kind of corny, but instead of you know, looking at somebody standing there, you try to see how they're standing and why they're doing it and where they just came from and where they're going. And that gives you a frame of mind of like what that person might be like. And you know what you feel like when you're angry or upset or bored. So how do you convey that? How, how does somebody sit in a chair when they're bored versus when they're excited? How does somebody stand when they're being shot at versus when they're just sitting there, what's going through their mind. And so you try to you see that and you see how somebody slumps in a chair or somebody sits up straighter. Those are the things that, that people are recognizing in the paintings. I, I see those and I exaggerate that a bit to kind of bring that to the forefront. You know, I think your brain is are trained to recognize patterns and cues and structures and it's everywhere all around us all the time in our face, but our brains filter out everything that's not essential. So your brain needs to recognize the face of a tiger because it might eat you, but it doesn't need to recognize the grain of the wood and have the grain of the wood jump out and say, look at me. So your brain filters that stuff out. Well, the same thing, you're not consciously used to trying to see structure and, and order and things. And, and uh, when you work at seeing things that way and seeing how everything is organized and structured perfectly everywhere all around you, you start to get through that fog of consciousness that is otherwise keeping you held back, I think. And uh, so you, you learn to see the way people sit, the way things, you know, especially like in landscapes, the, 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 the way something is laid out, you, you see the, import, the thing that's important to jump on and then you jump on that or you jump on the, the way somebody's standing or running or doing something. Your background, if you have the background of the anatomical understanding and all the technical things, uh, you get to the point where the, the technical things you're not struggling with so much because you've trained and trained and done a lot of that. You know, you, you mentioned your 10,000 hours of work and all that comes second nature. And then you're able to express what you're perceiving and you know what you're trying to communicate and, and you have a better way of understanding how to translate that simply onto a piece of paper or canvas. I think that's what it comes down to is just finding the order and knowing what, what's the important information to translate down. Uh, I'll say this when I'm talking about seeing the structure and order and things. W- when you're on a psychedelic, you definitely see everything becomes very obvious. All the patterns that you're normally not paying attention to are screaming for your attention and on the visual side of it. And you realize how structured and ordered everything really is. It's obviously the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's weird that when the first time I tried mushrooms, that was one thing that became very apparent. It's like all of a sudden I saw exactly. You know, I was talking about learning to see. It's like everything was just very simple. It's like I saw it. it was I, I did some really crazy drawings. It really 
really good and very simple charcoal drawings. But I could, it's like it's like I, I you know, been drawing for you know months and months and months, and all of a sudden it just came right down to me. Just like a, it, it was almost like you want to learn how to draw, get a piece of paper and a piece of charcoal, and try not to draw. That, that was kind of the conclusion I had. <laughs> <laughs> so you say. You tried mushrooms at 37. Did you like smoke weed or something like that before, or is this like the first time you ever did drugs in your life? This is the this is the first. Yeah, wow. I didn't smoke pot or anything, and I, I don't know even how it came up. I was on a trip with a friend to an, an artist retreat thing, and uh, we were talking about it in the car, and I decided, you know what, this sounds like something I want to investigate from what he was telling me, and I decided I didn't want to dip my toes in the water. I wanted to go into the lower Earth orbit, and so <laughs> it took probably. Like, Three gram dose of it. I mean, I had a handful of mushrooms wow. <laughs> at the time, and uh, it was the most mind blowing visual experience. And, and just you know, the uh, revelations you come to, the, the, how simple things are, and how funny everything is. And and um, yeah, it was uh, you know, you, you know, I grew up in church and stuff, but I, I kind of edged away from that as I've gotten older. But you know, it's almost I wasn't really. On the side of being an atheist, I just was under, you know, undecided. You come to this sort of uh, religious experience where it's not like a, you know, there's a Jesus or a God or Buddha. It's it's, it's more of like there is a, a God is I guess God is love and it is part of all of us and we are an extension of God. That's kind of how I came to it, I guess. Isn't that but strange was, though that you there's so many people that have that experience on psychedelics that. It, what do you make of that? Like, what do you make about that that similar experience that everybody comes to that conclusion that we are all kind of one and we're all part of this kind of weird I, reality that whatever we make solid, but it doesn't seem solid I, when you're in psychedelics. Is, is that it's, you tend to go in a circular argument. You start out somewhere and you start going around in circles and it's it's very mathematic and it's very funny and it's very obvious at the same time. He's going around, it's like, you know, in the beginning, you know, Wizard of Oz, you know, she starts out at the yellow brick road and starts out in a little spiral goal and it goes, moves out, moves out, and then they go on a journey. Well, this feels like you're coming back to that little spiral and you just come back to that one point where it's all right there. I would, I would start t- telling some friends of mine something I was, when I was tripping in, and I would stop midway because it was already known. I didn't have to explain it. It's like, it was, it was, I had have contradictory thoughts at the same time. It's like a, weird things would happen. Like I, I went to eat like a little Debbie snack cake cinnamon roll. I was took a bite out of it, and it became like this lump in my mouth. I couldn't eat it. I out. I'm like, this isn't real food. How can they feed this to us? How can anybody? They should have to be able to prove it's food before they put it in a wrapper and sell it to us. <laughs> and you know, it it, it does it, it it changes it changes the way I think quite a bit. I mean, you know, I'm not like I'm a different person, but it's like it's like it resets your brain in a weird way. It, it does. It's it's. And uh, I remember listening to your podcast. Uh, what was what was the guy's name? Um, Ryan Whitfoot. Yeah, and uh, you, know, I, you know I agree a lot with what you guys were saying about um, it not being taken lightly. It's like I don't know how anybody could take this and go party because it seems like maybe in a small dose, but it seems like it's a waste. It know? is. It is a waste. And, I partied with it when I was younger, and it was a total. Yeah. I, I after hearing all these stories now, I want to try it again. Like I mentioned in that podcast, because I wasted it. I wasted an opportunity. Yeah, but I also see that if you have a strong enough experience with it, that it's not something to be taken lightly either. It's, you know, it shouldn't, you know, it's, I don't think it's as dangerous as most prescription drugs that are out there for antidepressants. And stuff. I have friends that are in on antidepressants and it's, you know, I think, I think a psychedelic would probably help their cause more than, more than what they're taking. It's like they're a guitar and then instead of tuning all the strings, they're just clipping a couple of strings. 
I think the psychedelics helps gives you a very introspective look at yourself, and you become very honest with who you are and what you think and what you're doing. You slowly start to retune things that are not working right in your life. And since I've done that, I don't eat junk food anymore. I cut out hamburgers and French fries. I I start I joined a gym. I joined a jujitsu club, and, and I get back in shape. And it's I've changed a lot of bad habits for better habits. I think if you get away from your experience long enough, you slide back to whatever you're doing. But I feel like I, there's certain things I just can't do anymore. It's just like whenever, whenever I've tried to do, it's like it's just my body rejects it. It's like my spirit rejects it. It's like this isn't right for you. And whatever that, you know, with eating, whatever the psychological hold on me with having, you know, a bag of powdered donuts when I got home from the studio and less of milk, Whatever that psychological hold was rewarding myself, I, that wasn't a reward anymore. That was causing damage to me. That's how I perceived it. It was changed the way I thought about it. It's like this is not necessarily in terms of good or evil. It's not good or evil, but is is inhibiting the pattern I want to have in my life, That's which fantastic. is be healthy. So it's it's you know you start I started thinking of things. And it's like you know like I said, it's not bad. It's not good or evil, devil or God. It's it's anything can be good. Cell phones can be good, but they can also be very intrusive. And they can be disruptive and they can make you lazy because you don't have to do, you don't have to, I don't even know my parents' phone number. Yeah, I know. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know my mom's phone number. <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know what I'm saying? It is. You know, and Facebook, I mean, I, I, Facebook isn't real. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's like people get so tied up in that. It's like there was this artist guy that I was friends with and he was talking some stuff on his page about how he was so annoyed with young artists, sending them links and, and you know, tagging him and, and, uh, you know, how they're just a bunch of, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm talking a bunch of trash about them. And I, I just posted on this thing. I said, well, maybe you should change your page to a, a crappy young artist need not apply. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, they're just trying. I said, I, said, I said, you know what I hate even more than that is people who have their nose up in the air and young artists trying to figure out a way to, to market themselves and find an audience, even if their efforts are misguided. And I said, I hate, especially those attitudes coming from people who don't create anything. And then he got really pissed off at me, and he sent me his email. I was like, screw you, dude. I do create. And he sent me a link to his Facebook page, and I just wrote him back and said, how does it feel? <laughs> and then I, then I deleted him from my friends list, and I blocked him. And then uh, later I thought, you know what? This is stupid. And I was like, I, I became a jerk just to prove he was a jerk. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, I, I guess I need a, I'm an asshole T-shirt. And I was like, everybody should have one. <laughs> so so I, I couldn't – I was on my – phone that night i couldn't figure out how to unblock him so i just wrote a post on facebook and said hey you know does anybody realize how stupid this is because I, I got on facebook and i realized like this is really dumb we're we're putting so much energy to communicate through a computer when i could walk out that door and communicate with anybody i want to and uh, it makes us lazy it makes us you know like we don't have to see people face to face and have a real interaction with somebody it can be good it, it helps spread information and people connect i'm not saying it's bad but it's like it can be as is an, is an edge where it falls off to being too too much. It's 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 inappropriate sometimes, and so I just said, uh, you know, hey Kurt, I didn't delete you. You still exist, and we're still friends. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's nice, man. <laughs> but, uh, and then I found him later, and I unblocked him, and you know, I think he's still mad at me, but you know, whatever. It's I understand. I think that's the other thing about come out of those experiences that you know, I think we take things too serious. We're all afraid to laugh, and uh, things are really funny. And I, I've been really working on trying to have more patience with people. And sometimes I, with that you know, guy, I had too little patience. I just, he rubbed me the wrong way and I stuck it to him a little bit. And, you know, maybe there was a better way to handle that. It probably was, but working on it. 
Yeah, this is like a there was a little Facebook meme actually about that, like a <laughs> Buddhist quote. I, sometimes I wonder if these quotes are even real. You know what I'm saying? Like they always say these quotes for people. Like yeah. I never check. I don't know the fuck if people really say these things. But there was a Buddhist quote saying that uh, holding anger for somebody uh, or spite is like taking a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. You know, like holding on to any kind of frustration or creating those negative vibes towards other other people. It is, it's like a butterfly effect, man. What are you doing to yourself? What are you doing to society? So you piss that guy off. What if he goes to the gas station and picks up some, a pack of cigarettes? He's in a bad mood. He gives some, he gives the cashier a fucking cold shoulder or says something smart because he's already pissed off and that cashier gets mad and the cycle begins. You know what I mean? So it's like this ongoing cycle of just negative energy. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction and that's mentally, physically and everything. And it's like, if I eat bags of donuts every night, I'm going to be fat and have a heart attack. <laughs> if I start doing something healthy, I may live longer and have you happier. It's like it's something that I was on on the mushrooms. I had a good look at myself in the mirror, which I don't really recommend on your first time. <laughs> it's wild, right? Yeah. <laughs> I see myself get old and I look sad. I'm like, why am I sad? I'll be happy. I put a smile on my face. I look like a happy old man. And that's, that's another revelation. It's like, oh, if you want to be a happy old man, it starts right now can't take care of it tomorrow because tomorrow never comes. But whatever your goals are in life, whether you want to be a happy old man, you want to be successful, you know, successful in the business of art, or if you want to be a race car driver, you have to start living the way race car drivers live or thinking the way they do. And that kind of comes back to another point with the, with the art thing is like, I remember I was in Huntington Beach. I was at a little market on the, was right next to the pier. And I was selling my art out of my tent and a couple of Lamborghinis pulled up stoplight right next to the vent. And they're sitting there, you know, $200,000 cars. I'm like, you know, I, I like cars. I'm like, man, that's cool. It's like, I'd like to have a Lamborghini someday. And I'm like, I bet you people in Lamborghinis don't sell stuff out of tents. <laughs> <laughs> and so and that, that thought is like, it's like, I need to quit selling stuff out of tents. What, I, what do I need to do? If I want to be a guy that owns a Lamborghini, what do I need to do? And so that makes me think, you know, long term of like, what would have to happen for me to be able to be in that position, whether I ended up buying Lamborghini when I was able to or not? And that's kind of what's led me to where I'm at now. It's like uh, I just started thinking bigger and thinking, uh, what else could I do? This is in the business side of art, not necessarily in the creation side, but they all hold each other's hands, so to speak. But, you know, you, you have to kind of, and I don't have detailed five-year plans of this and this and this are going to happen, but it's more of a mentality. It's like, if you want to be that guy on the top of the hill, then you have to know what he does and how he thinks. And it doesn't mean he's smarter than you. It's just that he does things. The patterns in his life are different than the patterns in your life. And so you see what they're doing and it's working for them, and you figure out how you can apply some of those principles into what you're doing. You know, the guy that sells Dancing Olives in every painting, you know, he's a really nice guy and he makes lots of money. He's very successful. He's galleries all over. Whether you like his artwork or not, what is he doing that I'm not doing? And then you look at what they're doing and you figure out, well, how can I apply some of their expertise, you know, just by observing their habits into what I'm doing? Is there really you know? a guy with I, dancing olives? Yeah. Just, oh, really? I think yeah. Made it up. No, no. Uh, his name is Michael Goddard. He's, he's a really cool guy. He lives in Vegas. And he's, a lot, he's a lot of uh, what I would call commercial art galleries. I, for the most part, I don't focus on niche galleries that do like one solo show every month because they don't make a lot of business sense to me, typically. I mean, there's not enough of them to go around for every artist, for one thing, and, and I, I can't book that many solo shows. So I approach galleries that sell G-Clays and prints and sell originals, and, and I try to working on I'm developing a network of galleries that I work with in the U.S. and the U.K., and, and, and 
they're just a little bit different. They're not, like I said, they're not focused on one genre of art necessarily. They may represent a whole bunch of artists, but they have a big space. They sell lots of different types of their work and they'll carry, you know, maybe six to 10 pieces of mine at a time, you know, whether they're mostly prints or not. And so like being, say, 20 of those in the U.S. versus one niche gallery every three months, where I do all this work for a solo show that would maybe sell a few pieces here and there. And uh, I don't know, just some business models just didn't make sense to me quite. And that's kind of how I approached it. And I don't know if a lot of young artists really think about that too much when they're thinking about, you know, they're going around networking, they're in the right direction, but they're not thinking about, you know, I just get a piece of paper and doing some math and like, how many paintings do I have to sell for how much, how often to make a living, to make some money so I can survive on it. And then they start figuring out like, oh, well, I can't, there's not enough galleries for me to do this. I may not be a, the most popular artist right now, so I can't get into all these galleries other than the group shows. You know, I, I just follow my nose, so to speak, I guess, on the business side of it. And it just kind of came from selling it in the street. That seemed to make a lot of sense. I had cash in my pocket. I didn't have to wait for a gallery to pay me. I didn't have to chase down somebody for money. or I didn't have to worry about where my artwork is at, if it was going to get returned on time or not. Or, you know, any other things that come up with, with dealing with, with some of the galleries. You're a bored but, hustler, uh, man. There. Naturally, I'm very, I was always an introvert, so it was very out of myself to do that. Yeah. But I'm to Venice, so I, I think that was some of the other advice I've given to other artists. They're trying to figure it out, too, is that you have to be willing to do things you don't want to do, and you also have to be willing to do things nobody else is willing to do. I, mean, I don't know if a lot of people would go down to Venice and see a bunch of people hustling around on the boardwalk and see that as an opportunity. You know, they're thinking, well, I'm waiting for the right opportunity. I'm waiting, you know, and that's how I approached when I was in Venice. I was trying to get into animation studios. I was trying to do illustration work. And, and all those things are kind of coming up against dead ends. And then I, I came back to, you know, this was working. And so why don't I just expand on what's working instead of trying to beat on doors that aren't opening? You know, so I never really intended this to sell my art as a fine artist. But that's how it worked out. And I think that's probably better because the illustration field is... Not enough jobs. They don't pay well enough to make it worth it. Uh, the animation industry went out the window with, you know, digital, and I didn't really want to go into. I didn't want to be an animator. I wanted to do background painting, and that totally went out the door. It's all digital now. Mm-hmm. So now I do whatever I want to, as far as art's concerned, and then I own all the rights to the work. So that's even better. Well, I really, I think this is awesome. You're a really smart guy. Um, right, you screw and edit out all my stimmers and stammers. <laughs> I do. I do edit. I totally edit it because I, I fell out like a fool so often. Especially, I'm, I don't have any experience in interviewing. You know what I'm saying? I'm like this. I'm like just a, a, a guy that likes painting and so forth. And I love artwork. And I thought. So what got you into podcasting? Because I listened to comedian podcast, comedy podcasts, and all these co- comedians were out there creating these podcasts. And what happened is that they bypass things like you could only see stand up through HBO or, or Comedy Central or so forth. Um, so those were basically like the galleries of comedians, right? Like you, you basically were only known through these venues. What podcasts did for them is it opened up doors for all these really funny people who just aren't mainstream, um, uh, mainstream like accepted comedians because of the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. So what they talk about isn't, it's not appropriate for, for television, you know, according to people, but it's funny as hell and they're really brilliant people. So that showed me, like, wait a minute, why aren't why aren't there more venues for artists? Because there's very few. There's like print venues, you know what I'm saying? So you get some small, short interviews with artists. But to me, it's almost kind of generic after a while. You know, a lot of them are very similar. It's kind of the same questions, same responses. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about like the the mental process and what it is to be a really successful artist. 
So I want to know and share that experience for people. Like it was something I wish I had when I was younger. Like how yeah. did Gabe Leonard do it? You know, because how you did yeah. it was different from how another artist does it. So yeah, it, it, and it's, you know, it's relatively inexpensive to get these things started. I mean, it's you, and then you post them online. People, and so far, people like it. You know, I mean, it's not huge, it's, but it's enough that you get, I mean, I got like an email from a guy from Israel who was like, just discover your podcast. Let's do a few at work. It's awesome, man. I like it. Like, cool, cool. awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I listened to a few of them, like, you know, on the page that you just poured over to me. They all, yeah, it sounds pretty cool. And a lot of the artists I hadn't heard of before, but that is unusual. Like I said, I, you know, I'm not really looking around to see what everybody else is doing. And every time I do, I'm like, oh, crap, I better get my ass in gear. <laughs> <laughs> That's the great thing about this podcast, too, is that I've got to discover a lot more artists, too. Like, I discovered your work just by, because I've been doing a lot more research on artists. So, like, doing research on you, I like, doing research on you made me appreciate your work a lot more. You're, like, I mean, you're seriously one of my favorite artists now. Now that I look at your work and, like, see the time lapse, I'm like, man, Gabe Leonard is a badass. He's a really good artist. <laughs> so, um, yeah, dude. Thanks a lot for doing this, man. And uh, best of luck with everything. Doing great work. Oh, thank you so much, man. All right. Have a good one. Awesome.